Colossians uh, chapter 1, verses 1 to 8, and can be found on the red, in the Red Bibles on page 1043-1043. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints in Christ at Colossae, who are faithful brothers and sisters, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. For we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints because of the hope reserved for you in heaven. You have already heard about this hope in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. It is bearing fruit and growing all over the world just as it is among you since the day you heard it and came to truly appreciate God's grace. You learned this from Epaphras, our dearly loved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, and he has told us about your love in the Spirit. Well, today we're beginning our third annual prayer focus week, and as is our custom, we're going to look at a biblical prayer, something that was prayed in the scriptures. In fact, it's just going to follow what we just read there. So keep your Bible open to Colossians chapter 1. Again, it's on page 1043 in the Pew Bible. And if you don't have an English Bible at home, we would love for you to take that Bible and read it. And better yet, come back with it every week. It's the most important thing that you can be reading during the week. Today we're going to look at verses 9 through 14, and the sermon is called, We Haven't Stopped Praying for You. I wouldn't that be great if we could put that up as the slogan of our church, because we just didn't stop praying for one another for God's work. Well, thanks to modern medicine, we are aware of many ways that we can monitor your physical health, how we can gauge how well you're doing, but how would you go about gauging your spiritual health? Well, one way we can look at is how much do you value prayer? We can glimpse how much you value prayer, not merely by the amount of prayers you give up in the day and offer during the day, but what is the content of your prayer? Now, we could add up all the on-the-go, Lord, help me prayers, and those are, are important. Sometimes we don't have time to pray for everything that's going on. It's just an arrow prayer. We shoot it up to God. But we're trying to think of something more than just a uh, reciting of wishes to the Lord, more than just our complaints to God, more than just telling God how he can make our life better. We're, we want to ask the question, are we dedicated for a period of time in undistracted prayer? Now, it's common for in the financial area to audit your finances to see where the money's going. But if we did a time audit... How much of the time in your week would be dedicated to focused prayer? Prayer of substance. And then if we looked at your prayers, what would it reveal about your heart and what, what concerns you and where your mind is going? American author and theologian John Piper, he spoke about the need for long, sustained times of prayer. And he said, holy, powerful, life-changing spiritual men of God are not made on the run there are so few people who believe that. Like if we understood that life is filled with constant threats to our spiritual vitality and our life, 
I think we would probably set aside more time for a prayer, just trying to be safe in God's arms and asking them for help. Now, when we talk about prayer, it can bring up a number of responses in people. Some are discouraged because it just feels like prayer is going nowhere. You feel like you're praying the same old things about the same old things and nothing ever changes. Well, today's text is going to help you. Other people, it seems like when they pray, pray God doesn't answer their prayers, but he seems to answer other people's prayers, and so they get discouraged. Today's text is going to help you. Other people never really learn how to pray, and they're not quite sure what to do, but our text today is going to offer you real help and encouragement. And so we want to read it, we want to consider it, and so as we just did a moment ago, I invite you to stand as we read God's word Colossians 1, verses 9 through 14, and remember that this is Holy Scripture. In verse 9 of Colossians 1, Paul says, For this reason also, since the day we heard this, we haven't stopped praying for you. We are asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will, with all wisdom and spiritual understanding, so that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and growing in the knowledge of God being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience, joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has enabled you to share in the saints' inheritance in the light. He has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. In him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Friends, this is the testimony of the Lord, and it is sure, and it will make the simple wise, so welcome it today. Please have a seat. If you were to boil this passage down, you would get a big idea, and this is what it is for this passage. Colossians 1, 9-14 highlights four elements of a biblical prayer so that you will confidently continue to pray. So that you will confidently continue to pray. So that first element we have in verse 9 is a comprehensive request. And that goes into the second element. There's a clear reason for that request in the first part of verse 10. And that turns into continual results. In the second half of verse 10 to the beginning of verse 12. And the last element for biblical prayers, there's a crucial reminder. And you'll find that in verses 12 through 14. So we're going to start our journey through this incredible prayer there in verse 9, looking at this comprehensive request. Now, this is so massive. It is broad and it is sweeping. And it's instructive for us that sometimes we should pray bigger prayers than what we do because of the impact that they can have. Look at how Paul begins in verse 9. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we haven't stopped praying for you. That's amazing to hear these words, but one challenge when we hear words like that is we're being dropped into the middle of the passage, which is why we have that first part read together. You see, when we're we're dropped in the middle here, it's kind of like when you turn on a program in the middle of it and you're trying to figure out who's who and what's going on. So I want to go back and just highlight some things in the first part of chapter one so you'll, you'll know what's going on. He talks about this reason. What reason is he talking about? We'll go back. And so we see that in the beginning of this chapter, he's writing to a church in the city of Colossae. So if you're in Turkey today, you'd be in the western part of Turkey and right in the middle, that'll put you in Colossae. 
is a vibrant town, but Paul had never visited them. He's writing to a church. He didn't know anybody. In verse 7, it says that this man, Epaphras, he went around evangelizing in the area of Turkey, and through his preaching of the gospel, a group of people in Colossae heard the message. They repented of their sins. They turned to Jesus Christ in faith. And so God called them, and the Holy Spirit regenerated them, and then he formed them into a physical expression of the body of Christ, a local church right there on High Street in Colossae. Well, what are these people like? In verse 2, we see that they're saints. That means they're, they're forgiven by God. They're brought into his family. They're saints who are faithful brothers and sisters. And Paul knows that this is the work of God. So he celebrates this work of God in verses 3 and 4, this explicit thanksgiving. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. He was thanking them that these dear brothers and sisters were trusting Jesus Christ and they were abounding in love for other Christians that they themselves hadn't met. In verse 5, we see that this faithfulness is sustained by a hope that's waiting for them in heaven, reserved for them. That confidence that God had something for them in the future enabled them to be present now, walking in obedience and loving. They knew they lacked nothing to do what God wanted them to do. Well, in verse 6, we see that he was giving thanks because the word that was preached to them by Epaphras was bearing fruit. It was growing all over the world as it had done among them since the first day they heard it. And then they came to appreciate God's grace. So when Epaphras came back to Paul to tell him about what was going on, he said in verse 8, about their love in the spirit. So all of this is in Paul's mind when he says in verse 9, for this reason, since the day we heard of this, that's a lot to drive a man to prayer. And so he says, we haven't stopped praying for you. How how do you do that? Does that mean that Paul never ate? Does it mean that he, he never attended to other business? Not literally that, but what ceaseless prayer in the Bible means is that he was always ready to bring them before the Lord. People he had never even met. Whenever he prayed, they were coming to his mind and he would bring them before the Lord at that time. But he says, we're praying for you. That's a a word that means simply making a request to God. But it implies a personal relationship to God. It's not reciting words from rote. It's not memorized phrases that you say over and over to God. It's a meaningful interaction with the living God. But then he says this, we prayed for you. And then he says in the middle of verse 9, we are asking that you may be filled. And this is where it changes. That word asking is filled with an intensity. He is filled with urgency. He's giving them his full attention. Now, when I was 13 years old, I had gone out on a bicycle ride and I got tangled up in some barbed wire, cut my leg really badly. And so when I came home, my father was just reading the newspaper and he just casually asked how my bike ride was. And I calmly, as much as I could, try to say, I, I cut my leg and I think it's bad. And so he probably thought I was joking because I did joke a lot. And he slowly lowered the paper. And as soon as he saw my leg, the paper went flying and he went from casual to urgent. He was dialed in. He looked at it. We went straight away to the A and E. His urgency made him focus on what was at hand. 
Now, his concern for me was motivated by a real dangerous crisis, a bad situation. Likewise, so often, that's when our prayers get focused, don't they? When there's a crisis, when there's trials that are happening. But if you look at what Paul has said here, there's no crisis yet. He is urgently seeking their well-being because so much good has gone on. He doesn't want it to be displaced. He is desperate that they not lose what they've gained. Do we have that sort of urgency for others when things are going well? Or is it only reserved for when things aren't going as well? At the end of this verse 9, we finally see this comprehensive request. Now, if you think about most of our prayers, if you're like me, I typically am asking God to change my circumstances. But Paul doesn't go there. Now, we know from the rest of the letter there were challenges that were coming at them. They were facing different kinds of trials. But Paul doesn't go there. There's something even more urgent in his mind than removing trials and difficulties. Look at what he asks here in verse 9. He says, We are asking that you be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Filled with the knowledge of his will. That is this comprehensive request. Now, knowledge isn't just the information that will win you a quiz. So, comprehensive, this request is, it has clear understanding. It means it's sufficient for any situation that these Colossians will find themselves in. Literally, it's a full knowledge, a robust and complete knowledge of his will. This goes way beyond our typical wanting to seek God's will for our life. You know, that self-focused, show me your will for my life so it can go easier kind of uh, prayers. When he's talking about a full knowledge of his will, it's much bigger and much more God-centered. So we get a helpful look at this in Psalm 143 and in verse 10. And, and listen to what the psalmist prays. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. Okay, so why does he want God to teach him his will? So he could be led on level ground. That means following God without distraction or without doubt. This is why he asks, teach me to do your will. See, many of us are, are trying to seek God's will, but you don't need to seek it. It's, it's found. It's found in his word. And so the psalmist knew that he could find everything he needed to please God in the written word, in the covenants, in the promises and the warnings that God had given throughout scripture. So when he's saying, teach me to do your will, he's asking for help to obey what's already been revealed. So often when we seek God's will, we're trying to go beyond what God has already revealed that should be sufficient for us. We tend to be dissatisfied with clear statements of God's will, like 1 Thessalonians 4.3. For this is the will of God. Are you, are you ready for it? This is the will of God, your sanctification. You think, well, that's nice, but does it help me to know what job I should take? <laughs> well, 1 Thessalonians 5.16-18. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do you realize that if, if you pursued that, it would resolve so much of the, the trouble we have in making a decision, whether it's a big or a small one. If our mind is in the right place, we will make decisions that will please God. Now, Paul was asking for them to be filled with a full and clear knowledge of God's will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. 
full knowledge cannot be separated from the wisdom and understanding that is spiritual or it's from the Holy Spirit. So this, this is comprehensive. He's talking about all wisdom and understanding. Now in the Bible, wisdom is merely the practical skill to live in a way that glorifies God. Understanding is it's taking all that skill and it's putting it to work in specific situations so that God is glorified. Do you see how immensely practical this prayer is? Do you see how you can pray for anyone without being aware of the details of their life? And this will apply to any situation you can imagine. Now, I mentioned that there are some threats coming against these people. And Paul's aware of that. He talks about it if you look over to chapter 2, verse 8. He says, be careful that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit based on human tradition, based on the elements of the world rather than on Christ. You see, the heart of Paul's prayer is that they're not going to be conformed to the world through these philosophies and deceit, but that they will be conformed to Christ. They'll remain obedient and loyal to God. And he's not just thinking about their actions, but their attitudes in their heart. It's really hard to think of a more important petition than this one, isn't it? If you think about what our children face when they go to school, if you think about what our university students face on the campuses, if you think about what our adults are facing in dealing with their elderly parents or whatever the case may be, this is immensely practical. There's so much cultural confusion around today that we desperately need prayers like this, don't we? This is a kind of prayer that will sustain us and it will strengthen us regardless of whatever new fads, new doctrines, deceitful philosophies, whatever trials you may face, this will apply to any situation. Unfortunately, we are more concerned with how many people are liking our tweets or our social media posts. We tend to be more concerned about, does the world like me? What do they think about me? And we forget about where we get knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. It comes from God's word directly. We forget that we live in a constant dependency on the word of God that comes from his mouth. We tend to, to go to other places and we get malnourished spiritually. Really, one of the tragedies of our generation is that with instant access to almost limitless knowledge... Our generation is probably the most illiterate when it comes to biblical knowledge. We're not taking into our hearts the things of God's word. Now, this knowledge that it's talking about isn't something that's zapped into you after a prayer meeting. It's something that is produced in us by a desire for it. And then we go to the hard and joyful work of learning God's will in his word. We study it. We memorize it. We meditate on it. And ultimately, knowing God's will in the scriptures will lead us to knowing God and becoming like Christ. So this is that first element. It's this comprehensive request. You can already see how massive this is. But Paul wants to give us a specific reason why he's praying this comprehensive request. And it's this clear reason. You look at verse 10. He says, so that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. That so that, that introduction words there, that tells us this is a reason for his request. So what will happen if God grants his request? Just think about this. It'll become a God-pleasing, worthy walk. 
Now, that word walk in the Bible simply means your, your daily conduct. Now, one of the ways that the British people, especially in this part of the country, greet one another is they'll say, you are right. And when I first got here, I thought that we're, I, I didn't look okay. I was in distress. They're, they're checking in. If, am I doing okay? And I realized, oh, it's just a simple, friendly greeting. Now, I've mentioned before, we lived in Argentina, and one of their common greetings there, they'll say, como andas? Which means, literally, how are you walking? And they don't want to ask, how's your stride and your gait? They're asking, how are you living? How are you getting on in life? But if Paul were here, he would walk up to you after the service, and he wouldn't ask you, are you all right? He would say, are you living in a way that is pleasing God? How are you walking? That's a great question to ask one another, isn't it? And when we hear, we can thank God, we can pray in that moment with that person. But in ourselves, we realize it is impossible to please God. But God in his graciousness has not left us without supernatural resources. You see, the Holy Spirit is God's presence in us. And through him, Jesus Christ indwells each believer Listen to Galatians 2.20 and think about the help that you have available to you. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's wonderful news. You're living the life of God because Christ is living it through you. Later in Galatians, that same letter in chapter 5, verse 16, listen to this help that's available to us so we can please God. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. That's amazing, and it's available to us today. Now, you're not left to guess what does a walk that pleases God look like. Scripture is full of things that tell us how to walk. Romans 6, 4, walk in newness of life. Romans 13, walk in purity. You have Philippians chapter 4. It says, walk in contentment. There's walk in humility and good works. Walk in love, walk in light, in wisdom and in truth. There, it just goes on and on. We have no doubt what God wants us to live like. But we have to realize it's not merely the external actions that we do. It begins inside of us, in our minds, because that is where the battlefield is. That's why Paul warned us in Second Corinthians chapter 10, verses 5 and 6, take every thought captive. Does it mean just invite it over for a meal and have a chit-chat with it? Take it captive. Lock it up. Watch your thoughts in your mind. And then he goes on in verse 6, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Do you realize being a Christian means the Lord Jesus has complete authority over your life? It's him that we seek to please. It's him we look for for help to please him. In fact, the heart of discipleship, Jesus said, is teaching them to obey everything that I have suggested you. No, you know, it's I commanded you. He has authority to command us. Okay, so we're getting an idea. This is the a broad walk, and there are many ways we can please God, but what does it look like in practice? Philippians 3, Paul shows us that this walk takes every part of you. Philippians 3, verses 12 through 14. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, meaning spiritually mature, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. 
Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Man, you just feel tired reading that. And this is straining with every fiber of your being. Now, as a runner, I competed in athletics and, and track and field. And there were times when you're running down after 400 meters, you're, you're coming to the end and there's someone still next to you. And you realize that person's not going to give up. And you feel like there's a bear on your back and you're running as hard as you can. And every fiber is going and you can barely lift your legs. Your arms are hardly going, but you're straining. And then you get to the line and they're still there. And so what do you do? You lean forward as hard as you can to try to lean them at the tape. This is what Paul is talking about, the straining ahead. You see, the worthy walk is not a half-hearted effort. It cannot be. But Christian, it is possible because what Paul said there is, Christ Jesus has already made you his own, and all of his resources are available to you. These first two elements, a comprehensive request, leads to this clear reason, and now he's going to unpack for us four Continual results. It's going to give them to you real quickly. You'll see they're fruitful, they're plentiful, they're powerful, and they're thankful. So I just want to touch on each one of these briefly as we move forward. He first talks about fruitfulness. And so as we press on to do every good work that God has prepared for us, every Christian will bear fruit. Jesus talked about this, John 15, verse 8. He's at the last night that he's with the disciples. And he's thinking about what's the most important thing I can tell these men. We've been together three and a half years. I'm going to be arrested in two hours. Within about six, seven hours after that, I'll be condemned to death. Within nine hours, I'll be crucified on the cross. What do they need to know? And this is what Jesus said in John 15, verse 8. By this, my father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. That's astounding. That's how we prove we're one of his followers, is that fruit is being born in us. I like how Paul put it in Romans 7, verse 4. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. Christian, do you realize one of the reasons Jesus rose from the dead is so that you can bear much fruit and then glorify God. And it always amused me when my children were small, they would want to buy us presents. And so, of course, they go out and get a job and make money, right? No, they, they come to dad to get money to buy a present for dad. Well, of course, I, I give the money and they go out and buy something. And uh, every parent, grandparent, uncle, friend loves it when you, you get that gift. And you open it up and you know, there's no way I'm going to feel comfortable wearing that in public. But I am going to love it because my child gave it to me. But we give it, we provide it. They go and, and buy something with it and bring it to us. I pretty much bought that gift, right? But it was my child. and I took delight that I had resourced them and to see what they did with it. God works the same way. He gives us every resource we need to please him. Be confident, Christian. You have the daily ability to please God. Even if it feels like this is all it is. God will smile. He delights over us. The fruit that he's mentioning here can come in different ways. There's godly character, you know, the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. 
Fruit can be it manifested in new converts. You share the gospel. Someone responds. You're, you're amazed and you see that they are a form of fruits from the gospel through you. Book of Hebrews talks about our praise to God as a fruit. There are many different kind of ways that we can bear fruit, but it's, it comes from a continual, joyful abiding in the Lord Jesus Christ. So in that same passage, you talked about bear much fruit, abide in me. He goes on in, or right before that verse I read to you in, in uh, John 15, verses 4 and 5. Abide in me, and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do a few things. <laughs> no, it doesn't say that, does it? You can do nothing, nothing of eternal value apart from Jesus Christ. You see, abiding in him means remaining close to him. It means keeping his commands. It means guarding his words in your heart. It means directing your words to him in prayer. It's an urgent dependency on him that is full of joy and delight. Now, God supplies every bit of grace we need to remain in Christ, but somehow it still is hard for us, requires our effort. Peter talks about this in 2 Peter 1.5. He says, make every effort to supply your faith with virtue. And then he lists off six qualities that every Christian should have. And these God-wrought qualities result in God-honoring good works. And this is the God-pleasing life. So the first result we see from this comprehensive request is this bearing fruit. Well, secondly, it's a plentiful life. You see it in the last part of verse 10. He says, growing in the knowledge of God. Now, growing is a word that means multiplying, exponential growth. It's talking about the extent, the size, the quality. But this is not a growth that refers to your physical stature. It doesn't refer to your bank account, to your health. This is a multiplication, the depth and the breadth of the knowledge of God. Because friends, knowing God is far more precious than rubies or young skin or popularity. Now, as with the fruit, this doesn't come about by being zapped by some sort of spiritual state. It comes through the knowledge of God in his word. Again, we go to Peter. 1 Peter 2.2, he says, Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. Like, it is hard work to know what God is saying in his word. People ask, what do you do all week? You just stand up and talk for a few minutes on Sunday. I'm trying to understand what this says, so I can be confident when I stand here, I can say to you, this is what the word of the Lord says. It is hard work, but the psalmist in Psalm 119.97 expresses the heart of every Christian. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. One of the joys of the Christian should be Sunday morning. I get to go and I get to hear God's word taught. I get to go and I get to speak God's word to other people. I get to go and I get to encourage other people to keep pressing on in these good works that God has asked us to do. This, interestingly enough, the comprehensive request was that we'd be filled with the knowledge of his will. Now he's saying one of the results is we're going to be filled with knowledge. This is so instructive. Because as we're obeying God, what he's saying here is, as you obey, as you know what God's will is, and you walk in that obedience, it actually leads to knowing God personally. It, it is a key way to know God is by obedience. But it's not just obedience 
abstractly. It's obedience from the word of God. Now, in recent decades, there have been a lot of books and teachings about knowing God apart from the Bible. Friends, be wary of that kind of teaching. The the Spirit does lead us. He does guide us. But God will not be truly and fully known apart from the written word of God. The Bible is not a lesser way to know God instead of hunches or prophetic words given. We have to be careful and match everything up to the word of God. God's word is clear. It never errs. It never contradicts. You don't have to wonder, was that partially correct? It's always right. So there's this fruitfulness, there's this plentifulness, and now we see this power. Look at verse 11. I think this this was shocking to me as I understood what was going on here. This is a result of that prayer request in verse 9. Being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience. Can there be any more power than that? Did you hear it? Strength, power, might. It's just piling up. And so you'd expect with all this in play, there are going to be some miracles, right? (laughs) There's going to be some sort of a a power encounter with the darkness. You're going to expect lifelong victory over sin, that you're going to walk in perfection. You might expect the power to have no illness, have a full bank account, that all your relational troubles are gone. You might expect that, but that's not what we see. This is the shocking thing. Why is all this strength and all this power and this glorious might given to you? Did you see it? So that you may have great endurance and patience. Okay, now if you're like me at this moment, you're thinking, oh, that's not what I wanted to hear. (laughs) I wanted to have the power to have victory. And God is saying, no, I'm going to empower you so that you can rise up under whatever trial that you're facing. Now, we, we imagine the victorious Christian life to look a little bit different, don't we? But this is actually greater and it is better. Because this is the kind of stamina that enables a person to carry a great burden with lasting fortitude. That you can take one more step by faith. It's great endurance and patience. And it's not flashy. But if any of you have struggled under the weight of a trial for any length of a time... You know how elusive these two qualities can be. Great endurance and patience. Some of you know it just doesn't let up. It goes on and on and you wonder, how can I make it? Do you see how powerful this is? This isn't just the resolve to go another day. It's not just the power of positive thinking. This is a spirit-wrought, soul-sustaining joy, even when the world is crashing down on you. This is how the church prayed. At the beginning, in Acts chapter 4, Peter and John were arrested. They were threatened to never preach about Jesus Christ again. But do you remember how the church prayed at that moment in Acts 4.29? This is what they prayed. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Continue to speak. They didn't say remove the trial. They said, make us bold to bear up under this trial so that Christ would be glorified. Boy, this really tells us we need to think differently about how to pray about trials. My brothers and sisters, it's not wrong to pray for healing. It's not wrong to pray for God's deliverance from trials. But we should also be mindful that sometimes when we ask God to remove a trial, we're actually asking him to remove the primary means to transform us into the image of Christ. You know that there's, there's no other way 
to become like Christ than through discipline and through trials? You know that's how the Son of God himself became mature and able to bear the cross for us is because Hebrews 2.10 says, For it is fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, and bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Should we expect any different path for us? And we're not looking for trouble. But Jesus told us in John 16, in this world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. He didn't pray that he would take us out of the world, but rather we'd have the, the power, the endurance, the patience to bear up under it. And so God, in his unsearchable wisdom, in his infinite power, and motivated by a holy love, he has something far better than an easy life for you, Christian. He has great endurance and patience. James tells us, pray for wisdom so you might understand the purpose of the trials that you're going through. There's this fruitfulness, a plentifulness, a powerfulness, and lastly, there's a thankfulness. Look at verse 12. Giving thanks to the Father. Now, this verses 11 and 12 was broken up in such a way that we, we lose that key word joyfully. It's right there in verse 11. And joyful is an interesting word. Grammatically, it talks about what comes before it. So it's have great endurance and, and patience joyfully. But then it also applies to what comes after it, that we would joyfully give thanks to the Father. It, it is a, a joyful response to God. Now, if you want to know what's the problem with our world today, it has to do with gratitude. Romans 1.21 explains the world's problems comes down to this. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. And then God turns them over to this series of, of sins. When we fail in our problems to honor God as God and give him thanks, we become overwhelmed by the trials. What God would say and what the Puritans said to us many years ago was, Every look you give to your problems, give 10 looks to Jesus Christ. And that's why Paul ends with his incredible testimony of what God has done for us in verses 12 through 14. It's this crucial reminder that we have to keep in mind. We have to be enabled, we have been rescued, and we've been transferred. Now, So often in our prayers, we're like leeches. We're saying, give me, give me. And God is saying, I'll give you a reminder of Christ so that you not worry and lose hope. Now, if you want to know what our true needs are, look at how God has provided for us. I love how Canadian theologian Don Carson said it. If our deepest need was economic, then God would have sent an economist. If our deepest need was for entertainment, God would have sent an entertainer. If our deepest need was for good health, God would have sent a doctor. If our deepest need was for political stability, he would have sent a politician. But our greatest need is for the forgiveness of our sins and rescue from certain judgments. So God sent a Savior. God is directing this whole thing. He's, he's the one behind it. He's the one rescuing us, enabling us. He's the one transferring us. And he can do this because our debt has been paid in full by Jesus Christ. That's the idea behind he ransomed you. Ransomed is when there's a slave who has a debt he cannot pay and someone pays it and rescues that slave from bondage. 
This is what God has done for us. In Him, in Jesus Christ, we have redemption. We have an inheritance that is to give us hope and joy for the future. It frees us from pursuing items in this world and, and to becoming carnal in our thinking because every inheritance that you might get in this world will either perish, it'll be used up, or you'll die before you can lift it out. But there is an inheritance for God's children that's waiting for you. And God wants you to remember that when you go to him in prayer. He's qualified us for this inheritance. He's, he's made us able to get it. He said, they are mine. And they have the right to this. Can you imagine if a convicted criminal stood before the judge? And they had an immense fine that they had to pay. And after the judge hit the gavel and he said, guilty, then he turned to the bailiff and he said, and now I will pay the debt. This is what God does for us. He not just forgives us, but he pays our debt. And then, then he adopts us into his family. He makes us his own so that we get his inheritance. Criminals becoming children. That is what God does for us. And then he transfers us. He takes us away from the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of oppression, the kingdom of, of satanic oppression. He puts us in the kingdom of his beloved son. This is astonishing and we are not to forgive this, forget this. You see, the instant you receive Jesus Christ by faith, God transfers you into his perfect kingdom. He gives Christ's perfect record to you and he takes away all your debt. This redemption will require the death of the perfect son of God. It required his blood so that we would be forgiven of our sins. And when God forgave it, he said, I will remember your sins no more. I'll remove them as far away as the east is from the west. So friend, have you received that today? Have you taken this forgiveness that's available for you? This transfer to his kingdom. It's a change of citizenship from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. And Christian, will you choose to be grateful and remember this? Because this is the foundation of that massive prayer that God gave to us in verse 9. Can you imagine how this church would be fundamentally transformed if we prayed a prayer like in verse 9? Let's celebrate what God does for us in prayer.